I really am honored to be here today. I'm uh, always thankful when Joseph trusts me with being able to teach while he's out, and I want to encourage you to pray for him. I always encourage folks when I go different places to pray for their pastors. Uh, being a pastor is not an easy thing at all, and so uh, pray for him as the as Lord brings him to your mind. You've got a good one. I'm going to talk a little bit more about him later in the message. But what today I want to do, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah, which is an Old Testament book. So if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and find Nehemiah, or if you've got your phone app, pull that out. Stuff's going to be on the screen, but I always think it's you know sometimes helpful just to have something to look at in your hand uh, if the slide goes away and you can, you can reference back to it, that kind of thing. And um, what I love, oh, first of all, let me say this before I jump in. What uh, you need to understand, I travel all over the state. I go to churches all over the place in South Carolina. And uh, if you just like rolled up here today, this is your first experience at church, or, or this is your only experience at church, and you think that what happened up here before I got up to teach is normal, um, that's extremely abnormal. Uh, most churches I go to, I'm convinced the reason the pastor prays between the music and him teaching is he's asking the Lord, how can I keep Karen off the mic next week because she really shouldn't be singing in front of people. She is terrible, and he just hasn't figured out a way to tell her yet. So these musicians do an amazing job, and they work hard during the week to get that ready. So, I, so if you see them, be sure you thank them for what they do because you hear high-quality stuff and hope you respond to the high-quality stuff every week, and that's not normal in most of our churches. So, uh, so they do it. And I'm not just saying that because I'm in love with the woman that plays the keyboard either. <laughs> And I've been in love with her for, this June will be 30 years of marriage, so it's, it's okay. If you're, thank, you, thank you. Listen, that's more a testament to her patience than anything I've done right. But hey, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah, and uh, one of the things I love about the book of Nehemiah is when you look in the Old Testament, if you just were scrolling through and, and uh, looking at the names of the books of the Old Testament, there's a ton of names in there. And so you've got, you know, you've got Amos and um, I'm, uh, Isaiah and just all these different names of, of, of guys that their books named after them. And most, all of those names, not all of them, but most of those names are, those are preachers. Those are, they were called prophets then, but, but they were preachers. So they were guys like Joseph or guys like me who you expect them to, to tell a story or to, to have something going on where, where they are doing something that God wants them to do, following some type of path. What I love about the, the book of Nehemiah is when you, when you read the story of Nehemiah, you need to understand that Nehemiah was not a preacher. He was, he was not a professional, uh, you know, he didn't have a seminary degree. He didn't go to North Greenville and get a Christian studies degree. He didn't have a commentary sitting on his shelf or anything like that. Nehemiah was a regular guy with a job, and his job was not being a preacher. So when you read the story of Nehemiah and you see how God used him, one of the things you need to always keep in your mind is this is a regular guy. This is a guy who was in a situation that, that he probably didn't anticipate being in, and God was able to use him. And so one of the other things I would want to encourage you to do today, this is a great story, and I'm only just going to cover one little section of it today. And I would encourage you to read the rest of the, 
of the book this afternoon. It's only 28,000 chapters. No, it's, it's really short. It's one of the shorter Old Testament books. So in between the first and second NFL game or when somebody's blowing somebody out, pull out your Bible, pull out your Bible app, and just finish the book of Nehemiah and read the rest of the story because what happens in it is amazing. And you will see that what Nehemiah set out to do, which is what we're going to talk about today, he was successful at, that God was able to use him to do it. So what I'd like to do is, is we'll start, I'm going to start with Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 1 and, and read some verses and we'll talk together and, uh, and then uh, hopefully we'll learn some things together that, that the Lord wants us to know. So Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 1 starts this way. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, during the month of Kislev, by the way, just want to let you in on a little secret. I know you're thinking Cliff knows how to pronounce all these words because he's been to school and he's super smart and he studied this. Um, this morning, I've listened. So if you've got the Bible app, there's a thing you can listen where it reads it to you. I've been listening to this over and over again, so I'll get the pronunciation of these names right. So, uh, of course, who knows if they know if they're, if they're saying it the right way, but either way. So, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, during the month of Kislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. Now, the first thing that you need to understand here is Hanani, it says, Nehemiah calls him one of his brothers. We don't know if he was a physical brother, like they had the same dad, or if he was just saying, hey, this is one of my Jewish brothers. And, but, but either way, Hanani was a guy that Nehemiah could trust. So, so Hanani and some other guys, they show up in Susa, where Nehemiah is, and they're from back home. They're, they're from the place where Nehemiah's heritage is. And so Nehemiah asked them, hey, how are, how are things going? What, what's, what's happening there? And he uses a couple of phrases in there that are important, a couple of words. He says, one of my brothers arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about the Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. So quick little history lesson here. So Nehemiah is serving a Persian king named Artaxerxes. We're going to talk about him in a minute. But before there was Persian kings in charge, there were Babylonian kings in charge. Now, how did that happen? Babylon came in and they attacked the nation of Israel and, and destroyed it, took it over. Now, they did something interesting when they defeated Israel. Instead of killing everyone and laying waste to the entire country, they came in and once they defeated them, they found the people that they deemed to be the smartest, the best looking, most athletic, the, the folks that had the most to contribute, and instead of killing them, they took them, and they took them back to Babylon, and they said, hey, you, we think you've got a lot to offer, so instead of killing you, we're going to take you, we're going to take you to Babylon, we're going to teach you the Babylonian customs, the Babylonian religion, we're going to teach you to be one of us, and we're going to benefit from your good looks, and from your brains, and from your athletic ability, and, and all the things that you're able to do. And so that is what was called the exile. So when you read in the Old Testament, it talks about the Babylonian exile and the exile. That's what it's talking about. These are the people that were taken from their homeland and they were taken somewhere else. Now, I've always thought it was interesting. What if you were one of the people that didn't get taken? So you're like, oh, I guess they think we're dumb 
and ugly and, and, and useless because if we were smart and good-looking and, and athletic, they would have taken us with them, but instead we're left behind. The folks left behind were called the remnant. So in that verse, when it says Nehemiah was wondering about the remnant, how the remnant was doing, he's just saying the folks that are still in Jerusalem, the folks that are still living there, what's going on? How are they doing? There's not many of them left. What's the story? What's going on? And so in verse 3, Nehemiah gets his answer. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. This was not the news Nehemiah wanted to hear. Gates and walls around cities were a big deal back then. They were a big deal because of because of keeping the city safe, keeping the city safe from being attacked. But I think the bigger word in this verse that's even more important is the word disgrace. Because at this point, Jerusalem had so little to offer another nation that they would ride by, the gates are broken down, there's very few people left. We know the ones that are left, everyone thinks they're dumb and, and worthless. And so folks would ride by and they would say, that, that place is not even worth attacking. It's, it's a burned out, out of the way place that doesn't matter anymore. Now, why is that such a big deal? Well, because this is the city of God. These were God's chosen people, the Israelites, and this was, this was God's city that he had established to be the light to the world in Jerusalem. And so when Nehemiah hears this news, this is not the news that he wanted to hear. It kind of reminds me of kind of the year we're living in. I, I, I saw this little thing the other day. I thought y'all would think it's uh, nice. So uh, this is Taylor Swift. And um, I, this is, this is, this is kind of how we feel this year, isn't it? I, I think in some ways we're like, we're like Nehemiah, and it's every time we, we turn on the TV, every time we pick up our phones, it's more bad news on top of, you know, it's like, pandemic and murder hornets and and storms left and right we've gone through so many hurricanes and stuff they're just they've gone to the greek alphabet i guess if we get to the end of that they're going to go to the hebrew alphabet or something it's it's just crazy the the different things that that we're having to deal with and and not only that not only the the you know the the pandemic we've got going on i think y'all probably heard about that and and uh, and the rioting and the and the injustice in our world and that kind of stuff just this general ugliness that there seems to be permeating our society, that folks don't even know how to talk to each other anymore. And if you believe differently than me, we can't just agree to disagree. I've got to say that you're the worst human being ever and you don't deserve to be alive. And if you don't agree with me, you say the same thing back to me. And it's, it's just such a, it's such a weird time, such an ugly time for us to be alive. And, if, and in January, if you'd have told me, hey, Cliff, here's what's going to be happening in November, I, you know, I would have been able to predict we're going to have a pretty contentious election. I could see that one coming. But all this other stuff, I never would have believed you in January. And, and so that's, that's what we're living. That's, and so when Nehemiah gets this news, that's kind of how it felt for him. And then in verse 4, this is Nehemiah's reaction to the news he did not want to receive. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying, before the God of the heavens. And when I was preparing this message a couple weeks ago, I'm just be honest with you, that verse was very convicting to me when I read it. Because 
too often this year and in other years when things don't go the way I want them to, my first reaction is not sadness and mourning. My first reaction is anger and maybe lashing out and, and saying who's wrong and how do I need to fix it. I feel like if, if this had been written in 2020, verse 4, maybe the response would have been this. When I heard these words, I picked up my phone and I put a scathing post on Facebook about the opposing political party. It feels like that's the way we react to stuff these days. But Nehemiah, it says that his first reaction to hearing that the, the city of his heritage was burned, that the gates had been torn down, it was deep mourning and longing for something to happen and be different. And then the end of that verse 4 it says, I heard these words, I sat down and wept, mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. It led Nehemiah to a first step, and the first step was prayer. The first step was prayer. I know you expect me to say this because I'm not like Nehemiah. I'm not a guy with a normal job. I'm, I'm a guy who's a pastor, and you're going, oh, yeah, Cliff, you always talk about prayer and how it's important. But I don't want us to ever overlook how important it is. I don't want us to ever get to the point where we think, man, I can just get up in the morning, kind of roll, do my thing, and, and, and just, and just kind of live my life, and maybe I'll pray, maybe I won't. I'll make decisions without prayer. We can't ever overlook it, and Nehemiah understood that the first step, if things were going to be different about this situation that he was concerned about, the first step was prayer. And I want to read to you the prayer of Nehemiah. So starting in verse 5, I'm going to read through verse 11. So hang with me on here. Be sure you follow along. And it, this was what Nehemiah prayed. I said, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeemed them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. What I love about this prayer, this, by the way, if you wanted to figure out what's a good prayer to pray or a good way to pray, Obviously, the best thing to look at is the Lord's Prayer in the, in the Gospels, uh, which most of you probably had to memorize at some point in your life. And you memorize the old King James, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's the best template for a prayer. But this is a great template for a prayer as well. If you're trying to figure out what's the good way to pray. Because here's the way we normally, uh, excuse me, here's the way I can be guilty of praying. And I'm sure I'm the only one. I'm sure you've never done this. Um, I can be guilty of being like a four-year-old in Walmart with my, with your, you know, four-year-old in Walmart. It's like, ooh, I see that. I want that. I want that. Please give it to me. Can I have it now? I want it now. Daddy, 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 please let me have this. I want it right now. And sometimes that's the way we pray. 
We, we, we go straight to, hey, God, I need this. And it might be stuff you might be asking for. It might be great stuff. It might be stuff that's not even for you. It's for someone else. But we immediately go to, what can you give me and when can you give it to me? And by the way, I want it super, super fast. But Nehemiah, this prayer, he starts off by beginning to tell God how great and awe-inspiring he is. God, you're a great God. You, you have done so much. You deserve to be praised. And that's the way we should start our prayers. And then the second thing he does is he moves into a time of honest confession where he says, hey, you're great, and I understand that I'm not so great. And I understand that there have been commands and statutes and ordinances that you have given us, and I haven't done them. And not only have I not done them, my father didn't do them, and my grandfather didn't do them. We are guilty of not following the path that you clearly laid out for us. And so it goes from praise, and then it goes to honest confession, and then towards the end, it gets to where Nehemiah says, and now I'd like to bring a request to you. Here's what I'd like to see happen. And what does he ask for in verse 11? He says, please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, talking about himself, and that of your servants who delight to revere your name. See, one of the things that Nehemiah understood and that I think we can learn as we read this prayer and as we listen to this story is that true change in our world is only possible by the power of God. True change in our world is only possible by the power of God. The reason Nehemiah went immediately and began to pray and to beg God for a change is he knew if something was going to be done about the burned gates and the broken down walls of Jerusalem, it was only going to happen because God chose to do something about it. It wasn't, he, he's a pretty, you're going to see, if you read the whole story, you're going to see he's a pretty organized dude. He's a guy that can get a lot done. Uh, he's the kind of guy you would want running your business if you had one. That, that's the kind of guy he is. But even he knew, no matter all the gifts that I've got, no matter all the things I've accomplished, if it's not God that's going to do it, it's not going to happen. We, I don't know if y'all heard, y'all heard the news. We had an election a couple weeks ago. Has anybody heard anything about that? And um, I'm really glad it's over. Uh, and you're like, well, Cliff, it's not over. We don't really know. Well, listen, whatever you believe about it, that's fine with me. But I'm really glad it's over from the standpoint of I can watch football today without hearing how uh, Lindsey Graham wants to kill my grandma and Jamie Harrison wants to do, do away with the police and I'll have folks breaking into my house next week. I, so I'm just glad all that's over with, right? And, but here's the thing. It doesn't matter who gets elected, who got elected. It doesn't matter how we stack courts. It doesn't matter what kind of laws we pass when it comes to changing people's hearts because none of that stuff changes hearts. True change only happens by the power of God. And, and Nehemiah understood this. He understood if I'm going to go to a king and ask him to do something for me, I, it's not about having the right argument. It's not even about asking him at the right time. It's about whether God will change this man's heart and allow me to have a conversation with him that's going to, to, to have an effect because his heart has been changed. And we need to remember that as well, that true change only happens by the power of God. Of God. So in verse 11, I kind of already uh, revealed this to you. So it's like Nehemiah waits 20 minutes into the story and, you, and reveals something important. It's like when you watch a movie and you're halfway through it and you're like, oh, that dude's related to that other dude and we never knew. Now that explains a lot. Well, the very end of verse 11, we find out who Nehemiah is. He says, at the time, I was the king's cupbearer. This is extremely important. 
Now, what's a cupbearer? We don't have, I'm sure no one here today has a cupbearer that works for them. Um, but we, we don't even know what that is. Well, at, back in those days, being a king was a really dangerous job. You know why it was a dangerous job? Because your kids wanted to kill you. Every day they wanted to kill you because they wanted to be the king. That's just the way it worked. And so you think your Thanksgiving's going to be awkward in a couple of weeks? You know, imagine Thanksgiving with King Artaxerxes. He's like, hey, I know you tried to assassinate me three times this year, but have a slice of turkey. It's really good. It's, so, so being a king was super, was super dangerous because someone always wanted to be the king. Well, kings back then had this job that they, they had several of them. They, they were called cupbearers. And Nehemiah was one of the cupbearers. What does a cupbearer do? A cupbearer is basically a waiter, but he's not just a waiter. He would taste the food of the king to be sure it was safe to eat. So if he, king, was having a glass of wine and some, you know, some roasted pork or whatever uh, delivered to him, then they would taste it. And if Nehemiah didn't die or didn't break out in hives, they would say, okay, it's safe for Artaxerxes to have some of this, and they would give it to them. Now, why is this important for what Nehemiah is about to do? Well, well let's, let's continue with the story, and, uh, and you'll see. But, but the, the big thing is, is that being a cupbearer had two important parts of this job that were going to make a big difference. Number one, he had close contact with the king. So he was, he was in the king's personal quarters. He got, being a king, the king didn't have to talk to anybody he didn't want to talk to, but he interacted with the cupbearer. He interacted with Nehemiah regularly. The second thing was he had the trust of the king. The, the, the king knew Nehemiah is not trying to kill me, so I can drink this, I can eat this, and be safe. So chapter 2, verse 1 says this. During the month of Nisan, I believe it's right. I think that's what the Bible app said this morning. During the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him. By the way, Kislev, when this story started, and Nisan, four months apart. Four months apart. So this is not a huge point of the message today, but just want to point out that when God broke Nehemiah's heart for the condition of Israel, and then the, the opportunity where he had to actually do something about it, it, was, it took four months. So sometimes when, when we know something needs to happen, we're desiring God to work on something, we have to be patient with God's timing on that kind of thing. So for four months, Nehemiah's been praying the prayer he prayed in chapter 1. He's been looking for an opportunity, and then this happens in, uh, four months later. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I'd never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why do you look so sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king. Now here's why I was overwhelmed with fear. A king, if, if the king wasn't in the mood to hear him ask him for something today, he could have had him thrown in jail, banished, even executed. And so Nehemiah had a desire to see something happen. But in order to take action, it was going to require a risk. It was going to require possible sacrifice. So he begins to reply, May the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king asked me, What is your request? 
So I prayed to the God of heavens, continuing to pray and ask God to do something because he knows this is not about how eloquent he is. This is about if God is going to act and move the heart of Artaxerxes. I prayed to the God of heavens and answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I may be rebuild it. So the first thing uh, Nehemiah asked for is I'm going to need some time off. I know you trust me. I know I'm important around here because I taste your food, but I'm going to need some time off. Can I have some time off? Second thing he asked, the king with the queen seated beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you return? So I gave him a definite time and it pleased the king to send me. I also said to the king, now I love this part here because the king hasn't asked him for anything. Like the king first said, all right, what can I do for you? And he says, how about some time off? And then the king might have thought, that's it, that's all I got to do. And then Nehemiah comes back in and says, hey, wait, 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 there's one more thing. I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. So now he says, I need some time off. And to get from here all the way to Jerusalem, I got to pass through all these other areas where other kings are in charge and, and they don't know who I am, and I'm afraid they might kill me. Can you give me some credentials? So when I roll up through there, I can say, hey, I'm a representative of Artaxerxes. I can pass through this area without you killing me. And then in verse 8, and let me have a letter written to Asaph, keeper of the king's forests, so that he will give me the timber to rebuild the gates of the temple's fortress, the city wall, and the home where I will live. So the third thing he asked for is, I need some time off. I need some credentials. And then, uh, if you don't mind, could you provide all of the building material for this giant project I'm about to do, which, by the way, will not benefit you and your city whatsoever. It'll only benefit the city where I grew up in the home of my heritage. Could you do all that for me? This is a huge thing to ask for. And look at what the king responds. The king granted my request. Why did he grant the request? For the gracious hand of my God was on me. True change in our world is only possible by the power of God. Because God had chosen to begin to speak to the heart of Artaxerxes early, that true change was possible. But then there's a second part of this that we can't miss. But God uses his people empowered by his spirit to bring about change. God uses his people, empowered by his spirit, to bring about change. Nehemiah understood true change is only possible by the power of God, but he also asked God in the prayer in chapter 1, he said, God, if you can use me, please use me to do this. And then he had an opportunity to do it, and it involved risk, and, and it involved just trusting that God was going to go before him when he had to make the big ask to King Artaxerxes and say, these are the things that I'd like to see happen. Can you please do this for me? But it happened because God had made the change happen, but then Nehemiah had been faithful to act because God uses his people, empowered by his spirit, to bring about change. See, it's not an accident. I really believe this. It's not an accident that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes. That, that didn't just accidentally happen. 
It's also not an, it wasn't just an emotional day when Nehemiah got the news about the, the walls of Jerusalem breaking down. It wasn't just that it had a hard year and, oh, this makes me so sad. It's because God broke his heart for that. And so God broke his heart to say something needs to happen. And by the way, you also work for the guy that can make all this happen, and that's not an accident. I want you to do that. I want you to be an influence in the life of this man. I... Uh, I get a chance, like I told you earlier, I get a chance to go and speak at churches all over the state and do different things. And, um, but I, this is my favorite place to, to speak uh, because this is home. And when I look around, there's some of you I look at and I'm like, ooh, wow, I've known you for 26 years. That's a long time. And uh, then there's others of you I look at and I'm like, never met you yet. I would love, love to meet you. And, but here, here's the thing I know. It doesn't matter if, if I know who you are and, and we know, you know all kind of details about each other's lives or if I've never met. Here's one thing I know to be true about every single person in this room. Whether I know you or don't know you, God has placed you in a position to influence someone. God has placed you in a position to influence someone. Just like Nehemiah, there are people in your life that you are close to and that trust you and not only does God has placed you in that position to influence them, you have a responsibility to influence them. And what are you influencing them for? You have a, a responsibility to influence them for the kingdom of God, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just to be a better person, not just to you know, get their hair cut or, or uh, you know, lose some weight or you know, whatever it is, that the other good things that are to do, but it is really about influencing people for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And everybody in this room, me included, all of you, God has placed someone in your life that you have an opportunity to influence. When I was thinking through this message, somebody came to my mind uh, who's a very special person. Chris Roberts, who was leading the music up here, y'all may not know this, but Chris is a preacher's kid. And some of you are like, oh, that explains a lot. Now that I know that, but uh, Chris's dad is an extremely special man. He pastored churches in this state for years and years and years. And one of the things that Reverend Roberts, uh, even after he retired, the, he was a member of a church in town here, just a, just a regular old church member like, like everybody else. But the pastors of that church would come to him for wisdom, come to him for prayer, come to him. And so he, his ministry continued even after he retired. He was, he was able to minister to his pastor and he was able to lead Sunday school classes and, and, and he, you, you never really retire from ministry and he didn't. He continued to do that. Well, then a few years ago, his health and his wife's health got to the point to where he needed to go live somewhere where they could have care 24-7, and so they moved into the Martha Franks Retirement Community in Lawrence, South Carolina, which, by the way, as an employee of the South Carolina Baptist Convention, I just want to let you know, just point this out, part of the money that you give here today goes to support that, so, so, so you need to understand when you give here, it doesn't just stay here to turn the lights on, it goes to a lot of other things, and one of those is to keep Martha Franks as a place that people can go and live and be cared for uh, in the last years of their life, so, so, Reverend Roberts and his wife, they moved in there, and, and then his main ministry became taking care of his wife. And she died about a year ago. And it was a time where it was easy for him to think, well, I don't know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know why, why God's got me here. And then at the same time, there's a pandemic. So his, 
connection with people shrunk to about that big. Now no one could come in. Chris couldn't even go visit regularly. It was just a very difficult time. And so who would he be able to influence? Where, how could God use him where he was? Well, there was a woman who is a, one of his nurses that comes to see him every week. And being the kind of man that he is, he began to talk to her about, about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and, and began to ask her some questions. And he asked her, he said, have you ever, you know, read the Bible? And she said, well, no, I, I really haven't. I've never read it. And he said, well, would you be interested in doing that? She said, well, yeah, I guess I would. And so ever since that conversation, every week when she comes, she still does her job. She still checks on his health and all that stuff. But the majority of their time they spend together is he is teaching her the Bible. They're going book by book through the entire Bible, and he is teaching her. That's a man who is in a position where he has almost no contact with people. But God is using him with someone that's close to him and someone that he's gained a trust of to be an influence. Now, I guarantee you, most of you in here have a lot more contact with people than he does and that God can use you to be an influence. And, you're, and you might say, well, Cliff, I don't know a king. Well, of course, nobody knows a king. There's probably only like seven kings left in the world. I don't know. Google that this afternoon and let me know next week. But there's not that many kings left. But it doesn't matter if you know a king or even if you know, you know, the governor, McMaster. It doesn't matter who you know um, or, or even a city councilman or woman. You don't have to know someone powerful. You can be an influence wherever you are, and God has given you that opportunity to be a gospel influence right where you are. I guarantee you. Now, two things as we finish up that I, wanna, I, I don't want us to miss in this story about, about influence Influence doesn't follow hierarchy. Influence doesn't follow hierarchy. Hierarchy is a big fancy word. I had to throw one in here to make y'all think I'm smart. But all, all hierarchy means is, is there's somebody above someone else. So if you were drawing a pyramid, King Artaxerxes was at the top of the pyramid. Nehemiah was way down here somewhere. You can influence up. So if you're a student, you can influence your teachers for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're an employee, you can influence your supervisor, your manager for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whatever situation God has put you in, you can influence. And it doesn't matter if you've got authority over that person or not. In fact, sometimes it's helpful if you don't have authority over that person. Because then it's just truly built on relationship and them not thinking you're trying to tell them what to do. The second thing, and buckle up for this one because I'm going to hit you a little hard on this, but it's okay. I'm not preaching next week, so if you don't like it, just come back. It's all right. But, uh, but the second thing that we can't miss is this. Being a gospel influence isn't just the job of the pastor. I'm going to say that again. Being a gospel influence isn't just the job of the pastor. I told you at the beginning of the message, one of the things I love about this is this is about a regular guy who'd never preached a sermon, who'd never been to seminary, none of those things. And God used a regular guy in a regular job in a situation that he never thought he would be in to influence a man so that it changed the future of an entire city. Y'all have a great pastor here. We have a great pastor. He's my pastor. And, and, uh, and Joseph does an amazing job, and I'm thankful that I'm able to fill in for him today to allow him to be able to rest. 
And one of the things that Joseph does is he is an influence wherever he goes. He's not, he doesn't just sit in the office here all the time. He's involved in the community. He's part of the Chamber of Commerce, involved in leadership there. He was the, uh, the president of his homeowners association. Yeah, you've probably heard some stories about that. But uh, he's moved out of that neighborhood, so I don't know. That, that place is probably going to pot. So if you live there, you need to move out. But, but, uh, but yeah, and, and, and then on top of that, he's married to Miriam, who we all know she's way smarter than him, and she's probably really the one making the good decisions around here. And so the two of them together, they are, they're an influence wherever they go. But you know what? But as great as Joseph is, you know what he can't do? He can't go to work with you tomorrow and be with the people you're with. He can't go into your classroom tomorrow and be in front of those students you're going to be in front of or be in front of that teacher that you have to sit under every week at school. He can't be where you are. So it's not, if we're waiting on Joseph, well, hey, it's, it, you know, I'm, my pastor does a great job of telling people about Jesus. My pastor does a great job of all this. All right, that's good. But it's not just the job of the pastor to be an influence for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all have an opportunity and we all have a responsibility. True change in our world is only possible by the power of God. But God uses his people, empowered by his spirit, to bring about change. So a couple weeks ago, we had an election. It was a big day. A lot of stuff went on. And um, it was, you know, exciting. I stayed up way too late. And then I realized, we ain't going to know anything tonight, so I went to bed. But here's, here's what I know to be true. The results of what happened a couple Tuesdays ago are not near as important as the way all of us, as followers of Jesus, live our lives this Tuesday and this Wednesday and this Thursday. That's more important. Are we, am I, being an influence to my neighbors, to the folks I come in contact with, to the people you work with, the people you're in school with? Are we taking the opportunity to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we taking the opportunity to love the unlovable? Are we taking the opportunity to show unconditional grace to folks in our lives that don't deserve it? Are we doing those things? God's given us an opportunity, and I'm praying for myself, and I'm praying for all of you that we will take that opportunity. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the truth of your word. Father, I thank you that a story about a man who lived many, many years ago in a place that most of us will never go, and it was even spoken a language that we wouldn't understand, uh, that, that it speaks truth to us today. Father, I pray for each person here, including myself, that this week that we would look for opportunities and take the opportunities to be an influence for the truth of the gospel in our world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.